podcast one production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this first series, I'll take you to the key markets of the world where you can do business and do it well. I'll guide you through the economics, politics and social history of each place and talk to an expert about the tricks and traps of doing business in each particular market. But first, strap yourself in because in this episode, we're off to the UK. I've always had strong personal ties to the UK. My parents, though Australian, have lived there on and off since the 1950s. In fact, they had me there in the 60s, and I lived there myself in the early 70s and 80s, and I go there a lot. One memory of the 1970s, though, was the shock of my parents and other Australian travellers at London's Heathrow Airport at having to go through the long queue at immigration, whilst their fellow travellers from countries that Britain fought against or saved in World War II got special treatment. What are you doing in the UK? This was the result of Britain joining the European Common Market in 1973, which later became the European Community and now the European Union. Australians felt that we'd help the mother country in the war, so why were the French and the Germans getting preference? Australian farmers and other exporters felt betrayed too by the UK in terms of trade, as Britain joined the Europeans' dreaded protectionist common agricultural policy. Luckily, Australia had already been looking towards Asia for export opportunity, just as London looked more towards Brussels. However, the UK's Eurovision of the 70s now has been replaced by Europhobia as the Brexit referendum has thrown the UK into a political frenzy. In fact, on one of my return visits to the UK to film the Airport Economist UK TV special on Brexit, I found a fair bit of confusion amongst business and citizens alike. This time at Heathrow, there was a lot of grumbling about the government's handling of Brexit by some very frank and candid immigration officials. Same in the pubs and in the cafes. Even the top economists in the city, the Bank of England and the universities were uncertain as to what extent Brexit could hurt the UK economy or benefit it. So how will Brexit affect Australians doing business with Britain? Joining me now is the CEO of the Australian British Chamber of Commerce, David McCready. David, welcome. Thank you, Tim. You know, the UK dominated Australian trade until the 60s and then it joined the the European common market and Australia sort of looked more towards Asia. Will that change now with Brexit, with Britain leaving the European Union? Uh, I think yes and no. I think what has happened in that period is, as you've identified, we obviously went to Asia. Um, I think the reality is that the world is becoming a much smaller place. globalisation effect is is everywhere. There isn't anywhere, probably even Antarctica, that's not affected by globalisation. <laughs> I mean, the number a few of, penguins, yeah. Well, there's a number of countries that are uh, you know, doing scientific research down there and so forth. Uh, so I don't think that it's an either-or equation. I think it's really a, what are the added benefits we can have out of doing business with more parts of the world? And clearly things like the TPP-11 take us in that direction. And clearly that's the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Absolutely. The opportunity to reach out and engage with more economies and look for those shared opportunities uh, continues to grow. And for the UK, it's obviously emerging from a period where its trade 
policy has been set by Brussels. That takes into account 27 other countries. And the UK, obviously, historically, had a much broader remit than that. You know, the old pink parts of the map, historically, were, were those parts of the British Empire. Uh, it's been a while since it's been an empire. It's a Commonwealth now, and there are lots of great opportunities within the Commonwealth, but with the UK as well. And I think what some of the things that Australians forget is that Europe's actually the number one investor as a whole in Australia. Second is the United States. But if you break that down... When you look at individual countries, the US is number one, obviously, uh, and then the UK is number two, uh, and the other European countries are a bit further down the list, but it's still a very important source of investment for us, and indeed, in terms of investment, outbound investment from Australia, the US is number one and the UK is number two. It's still a very important part of our relationship with the world, and given that the UK is such a, a focal point for the world, yeah, London is the financial capital of the world. It's the place where international businesses go. Uh, now, you could argue that New York is slightly larger or, or not. It also has the world's biggest economy behind it. So it's going to be large in its own right. The UK is the fifth largest economy in the world. And there's some great opportunities for Australians to get out there and get amongst it. So would you say that when we talk about Asia and the, the, the tyranny of distance being replaced by the power proximity with, with Asia, is that more about trade you know, rocks and crops, mining and investment, coal, iron ore, while the UK and Australia now is more about investment and professional services more than the the big uh, big ticket items like you get with a big coal or, yeah, or gas deal. Look, you know, the UK is going away from coal energy altogether, so there's not much point exporting coal to, uh, coal to, to the Newcastle. UK. Well, uh, we used to export it to the UK. I'm not sure if we still do, to be honest. Um, it's been a dwindling number, I know that much. Look, I think... Clearly, when you look at both the UK and the Australian economy, services make up the majority of, of our GDP, of our gross domestic product. So if that's what we're, we're trading in, then you know, rocks and crops, as you say, yeah, of course, big markets like China have lots of people who are moving out of relative poverty and a growing middle class in Asia. All those things are true and, and those are things that we should absolutely pursue as a country. Uh, at no point would we not want us to pursue that. But certainly a lot of our investment still comes from the UK. There's a lot of opportunity for us to invest in the UK and, and there's some great examples of that. Uh, Australian super, are about 74% I think now shareholders in the King's Cross redevelopment in London, which is the largest urban regeneration project in the whole of Europe. Organisations like Lend Lease just built the uh, or are building the Google headquarters in London uh, and doing some fantastic w- other work around the place. But there's lots of great things that are happening now and people probably have forgotten that because, and rightly, for the last 20 years in particular, uh, you know, I think Paul Keating probably really drove us down that road. You know, some would argue he put his arm around the Queen and said, sorry, Your Majesty, we're off to Asia. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think, um, you know, we've... We've been very successful there in terms of getting access. We've TPP11, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is certainly a great step forward, but we'd already done free trade agreements with Japan, China, Korea, uh, which are all great places for us to do business, don't don't get me wrong, but there's something fantastic about the Australia-UK relationship and there's lots of opportunity and trade is still growing. It's not just on the investment side and yeah, you only have to walk down the street and see the Jaguars and Land Rovers and, and other cars uh, coming from the UK here to Australia. Well, I suppose the Sun said when Paul Keating put his arm around the Queen, hands off, Cobber, was the, was the headline. But certainly, 
if you think about 2018, you know, putting all the history aside, what would just what would you what would be the highlights of the UK Australia relationship today? Uh, give us a snapshot of the of the trading relationship. Well, I think it's probably hard to go past the announcement in the last few months of the uh, Hunter class frigate, as it will be known, uh, otherwise known as the Type Twenty Six frigate, which is uh, the UK government's uh, or BAE's product, uh, British Aerospace Engineering, and they're going to build those for us here in Australia. It's a thirty-five billion dollar contract. Now, that contract is fantastic in that a we're getting a world-class defence vessel, but also the supply chain, both for the Australian and the British build, and indeed the Canadians have just announced they're going to build them as well. The opportunities in the supply chain for Australian companies are fantastic. So that's probably the the biggest ticket item in recent times. But as I say, Lend-Lease is developing places like Stratford, where the 2012 Olympic Games was, Elephant Park, uh, at Elephant Castle in London, King's Cross, as I've mentioned, uh, Australian super heavily involved, companies like Cochlear, there's all sorts of things. And the reality is that the things that make the UK attractive to Australians are the things that have always been attractive. So it's common language, a broadly similar sense of humour, rule of law, and an agreed view that the international rules-based system is something that we want to uphold. Those sorts of things that give businesses who are looking to go out into the world confidence that where they're going is going to be somewhere safe and comfortable for them to, to ply their trade. When I was making the Airport Economist UK episode for the TV show, I noticed that small businesses in Britain were doing very well. Claymore Wines was sponsoring the Liverpool Football Club in Anfield in the north of England. Um, Paolo Sebastian was making fashion for for London. Uh, Steriline Racing had the starting gates at Newmarket uh, and uh, and all the race courses around, uh, around the UK. So it seemed that small businesses regard... The UK is a very central location to launch themselves across to Europe or across the Atlantic. They used to call it the the Kylie effect, like Kylie Minogue. They'd go to London <laughs> first and then launch themselves on the world stage. Do you think that's still the case that people use the UK and London as their their launching pad for for Europe and elsewhere? Yeah, certainly I do, and I, I think it it goes back to. If you're going to try and and step out into the world as an Australian organisation, particularly as an SME, where you don't necessarily have the the backing and funding of a larger organisation, you want to go somewhere where you feel you can arrive and be as much as you can on a level footing. And we actually see quite a number of organisations that actually in their longer term growth plans have plans to go to Asia, as you say, to Europe, to the US uh, and other parts. And they choose to go to the UK first because actually it's pretty straightforward comparatively to learning a new language, having to figure out what interpreters do, how that works, understanding different customs, different uh, rules around all sorts of different um, pieces of of business. Even down, our accounting systems are so similar. Uh, People who can practice relatively easily across a, a whole range of professional services between Australia and the UK. Not all perfectly, and there are some hurdles, but comparative to other places in the world, it's a fairly easy first step. It seems natural. I mean, SMEs, when you look at where SMEs go from Australia, they'll base themselves in Singapore when they're going into Southeast Asia. They'll base themselves in Hong Kong. They'll base themselves in London for Europe. They'll base themselves in Dubai for going into the rest of the Middle East. So in some ways, it's quite rational to be London. It's People used to call it channel fever. They're not starting in Frankfurt. But it, it really makes sense, doesn't it, for language and law and 
institutions? Yeah, I think so. Look, one of the great benefits that we've had as a, as a former British colony that's turned into our own, own country, obviously, uh, is that we've maintained many of those institutions. Um, some of them are maybe not perfect. The political system, some would argue at the moment, needs a little bit of work. But for example, um, when you look at education, the number of vice chancellors, both in the UK and in Australia, that are from the other country is quite extraordinary. They sort so, of swap, don't they? Well, uh, Ian Jacobs at University of New he South is. Wales. He's a he's a British guy. Yeah, yeah. You look at Ed Byrne at King's College in London. Mm. Uh, you know, there, there's two examples. So there's so much people movement, and the fact that there are 1.2 million Brits live in Australia, there are that's the greatest number of Brits in any other country outside the UK. It's no real surprise, and I guess with a guy with a name like McCready, I'm obviously descendant of one of those who came out from the UK uh, some time ago, but it's no real surprise that there's an affinity, there's an understanding, and and a lot of those institutions, as you say, and we grow up with the, the same ideas around rule of law and about how the, how the place works, and they're not that dissimilar in the UK. So, of course, it has a, a strong effect. Well, from your accent, David, I think your McCready's came out a long time ago. They did, quite a long time ago. If you've ever been down to Martin Place and looked at the GPO, my uh, I think it was my great-grandfather and his brothers were involved in, oh, in building some that? of that. Oh, so. muzzled off. Well done. You see all the headlines about Brexit. So with the headlines about Brexit, why would the UK now be a place for Australians to set up? Well, I think two things. One is I think it's always been a place for Australians to set up, and we've already touched on that. But I think... Now, Brexit's not quite there as we speak. The UK hasn't finished its withdrawal agreement with the EU. Um, personally, I feel confident that pragmatism and um, the the idea that actually we'll get somewhere in a deal before the deadlines that lead into March for Brexit will come about. But the main thing around that for Australians is if the UK is able to negotiate its own free trade policy, which is very much part of certainly Liam Fox's agenda, and he's the Secretary of State for Trade, equivalent of our Trade Minister, that's very much one of the things that the UK is seeking to be able to do post-Brexit. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, that just means, A, we can start negotiating a free trade agreement once Brexit has actually happened. So beginning of April next year, roughly on, on timelines. And that means that we can we can redress some of those hurt feelings perhaps of, of some from 40 years ago. Uh, personally, it's a little bit before my time and I wasn't involved in trade or investment at that point in time. But uh, look, it, there are lots of opportunities for us to work with people who are like-minded, who have a similar view of the world, uh, who have uh, networks and reach into places in ways that we don't. And similarly, for them to work with us in taking advantage of the free trade agreements with Asia, for example, that we've mentioned before. The opportunities going forward are there for us all to uh, take advantage of. What we need to understand in the in the short term is what can that look like now? Well, that might be everything from you know, recognising professional qualifications in each country. Obviously, agriculture is one of those things that always gets brought up with free trade agreements, particularly given the crop side of your rocks and crops uh, piece earlier. Yeah, there, there are some significant opportunities for us um, in terms of getting greater access to the UK market, which we lost 40 years ago. You know, when you go to the UK, a piece of steak is quite expensive. I think we can probably help them you know, bring beef to more. Well, I guess um, with the 
EU agricultural subsidies out the way, the UK market's going to be a lot more of an open market for Australia, particularly in agriculture. Well, I hope so. You know, it's early days and there's a, a negotiation to be had in front of us, but I certainly think that there's a willingness and an openness at the UK. One of the things about Brexit that I think's probably underestimated is Brits are a very proud people. They've had a long history of being a, a trading nation. As I said before, the Commonwealth reaches uh, 53 countries around the world. Actually, interestingly, as a side note, people don't understand that there are actually countries that have never been part of the British Empire, never been part of the Commonwealth, who actually want to join the Commonwealth because it has a group of like-minded democratic countries that are looking to hold and maintain that idea of a democratic world and also promote the sort of free and open trade uh, opportunities that we can we can get from each other. And given the stretch of the, the Commonwealth, countries like India, South Africa, Canada, the UK, obviously, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Pacific Islands, Singapore, there's some great countries in there with, with really great economies and are doing things that are very either complementary with us or can uh, help us into new areas. Uh, that's part of the globalisation story we were talking about earlier. I think there's huge amounts that can flow from that. I think when the Commonwealth Games were on, we looked at the numbers of SMEs exporting around the world and nine out of 20 or 10 out of 20 win the Commonwealth. So it's obviously a very important you know, part of the small business exporter story. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that goes back to those same reasons why the UK is attractive. The, the UK, for right or wrong, and it was a different era, but some of the institutions they left behind across the Commonwealth have been very warmly taken up by their local people. And the rule of law is, is chief amongst those in almost all of those jurisdictions. People have a fairly clear idea of, of what the opportunities are and how they can embrace them, given those, that context. When you see the books, Why Nations Fail from Harvard, MIT, and Ian McLean's own book, Why Australia Prospered, the countries that have British institutions seem to, be, seem to do better than those that don't, even if they have the same amount of resources and agriculture and populations. The ones that have British Parliament... British rule of law seem to have been economically quite successful. Yeah, look, I think that's right. I think in countries where you have a democratic society, generally you find that there's a, a little bit more of an understanding that it's not just for the bloke or, or the woman at the top. It's for a broader proportion of the population. It doesn't mean that there's not inequality. It doesn't mean that you, know, you and I have both travelled to India. It's, it's a, amazing how stark it can be between those who have and those who have not. And the the juxtaposition of one right next to the other is, is quite confronting at times. But broadly speaking, it's those institutions, again, that, that underpin the way that that society works and the way that it should hopefully work for all. It doesn't always work for all, but for more than just a few, uh, I think those are the values that people resonate with. And if you feel you have a bit of say in the future and you feel that you have the opportunity to get ahead and ha have some ambition and aspire to a better future, both for yourself and for your family, for your kids and for the community that you're in, then you'll see a better result. Now, for an Aussie business going to the UK, how do you get your foot in the door? Do you go to Australia House or one of the states, you know, Government of South Australia, UK government? How do you do it? Look, I think one of the first things to do is probably come and talk to us uh, at the Australian British Chamber of Commerce. We uh, have a large network here in Australia. We operate basically across the country. 
and we can help you connect to those groups. But absolutely, uh, you know, the team at Austrade in London, headed up by David Watson, is absolutely fantastic. Each of the states uh, have some sort of representation there. Um, so there's some great opportunities there for, uh, for Australian companies to link in with them. But also the Department for International Trade from the UK. They have offices here in Australia, uh, in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth. So, the, you know, there are people here from the UK who can help you through that process. But equally, there are lots of people who have been on this journey before and probably just think about who you know in your own network. Who do you know who has done this before and ask them some questions because that experience is is invaluable to understand what the challenges are. And there are some. Setting up a bank account can be challenging and other things, but they're not insurmountable and there are people here to help. So please feel free to reach out and, and talk to us. We'll, we'll gladly help. Now, in some countries, there's certain customs you have to follow. Australian going into Britain, there can't be too many customs you've got to worry about. Would uh, there be? Warm beer. You warm have to beer. get used to that. Okay, get uh, used to that or chill it. Well, anything you can't mention? You can't mention, you know, Barry McKenzie or anything? No, look, I think it's important to understand that they're not necessarily always as forthright as what we are. Mm. And they're a little bit more reserved broadly. That's a bit harsh. You're making massive generalisations, you know, mm. population of 75 million, they're not all the same. Mm. But broadly, as I say, our cultures are quite similar. There are some things to be wary of and being a little bit forthright or, or over bearing at times uh, is some of the comments that we get from British people who find Aussies are a bit pushy at times. So just be relaxed and uh, and just be honest about things. I think that's one of the things that Brits actually really look for in Australians that they don't necessarily get from all their other part- trading partners is there's generally a very frank and honest exchange and that's, that's what they really appreciate. The two Ronnies used to always do this thing about the class war in Britain. Is that still around or is, that, is there remnants of it or does it matter? Look, it, there are certainly remnants of it. Um, there are still hereditary peers in the House of Lords, mm, um, mm. not as many as there used to be. But, yeah, th- there are some pieces around that. To be honest, it's not a huge issue. Most people are fairly open and, and happy to speak. They understand you come from somewhere else as well, uh, so they don't always you know, stand on ceremony as much as what you might think. Do I have to call you Lord McCready if I'm at you, or can it be David, or what's the story? Look, generally, in my personal experience, mm. uh, I'd love you to call me Lord McCready, but I haven't <laughs> heard it. Uh, but uh, in my experience, most people, are peers, particularly those who have been appointed from, from business and government and others, they tend to... Uh, Expect that as a first up. And Formal, then, yeah. And then, then uh, normally pretty down. happy to say, look, just call me David. Yeah, okay. What, what are some of the top challenges of doing business in the UK? You mentioned bank accounts. Are there any others in, in business you've got to be a little bit wary of? Not really, to be honest. You just If you know your product and you know what you need to do in, around exporting, so understanding if there are tariffs and other things, understanding where you need to be on those things, but... Generally speaking, a good freight forwarder, if you're looking to distribute or those sorts of things can help. Certainly things around immigration. One of the things that I must stress is when you turn up, in Australia, business and work are almost interchangeable words. Many people turn up at Heathrow and say, I'm here for work. Ah, That's not so good. No. So work in that context at the customs at the border uh, indicates you're going to be paid by a UK organisation. That's a no-no unless you have the appropriate visa. They might send you back. Exactly, they and they have uh, sent people back, turn them around and put them on the next plane. Uh, however, if you're there for business, to go for some business meetings and to have discussions around progressing your business in the UK, uh, you don't need a visa for that. 
However, I would advise everybody before they go to uh, just just check with a travel agent, speak to an immigration agent if you need to, just to, to give, give yourself that certainty around it. And there's now e-visas at Heathrow? Not just yet. So that was one of the great announcements uh, in the autumn statement or the budget as it now is of, uh, like many Australians, stood in the queue at Heathrow and watched the others from the EU slip through on the uh, e-visa as we're very familiar with doing here at home. And for many years, I've made the case to visiting British politicians and indeed when I've been in the UK that, hey, when you come to our place, we let you come in on that. Why can't we do the same here? So it's, it's good to see that uh, finally being reciprocated. So you're the brains behind that uh, bit of lobbying, oh, David. Look, I have to say, I've put my hand up for it many times, but <laughs> I, I can't claim it on my own. I know there are plenty of voices in that choir. It's a team effort. Good. Now, of course, we're in a competitive world, so there's a lot of talk about Brexit and what it will mean for doing business Uh, in the UK. Are rivals angling like Ireland or France or Germany, are they saying, well, when Britain's out of the EU, you've got to base yourself in Dublin or or Frankfurt? Is that coming? You know, is that that talk around that the UK will be a bit cut off now? Absolutely. Marketing 101, if you can kick your opponent while they're down, of course you're going to. And you're going to put forward the best business case you can as to why people should go elsewhere. The reality of that at the moment is there's a little bit of uncertainty, obviously, because there isn't a deal as yet. If there is a deal, there's a bit more certainty in that it extends the period that the UK effectively stays in the customs union until the end of December 2020 uh, for them to organise what they might have as a future arrangement beyond Brexit, uh, so beyond the end of that transition period. Obviously, whilst there's uncertainty, businesses need to accommodate what might be an unfortunate outcome. So if there is no deal, and particularly for financial services organisations, uh, the passporting, which is a complicated issue, it has nothing to do with the passports we're just talking about, as the ability to provide financial services in different yep. markets. Yep. That's a, a significant issue. And certainly the Australian financial institutions that we work with have all uh, are well down the path of you know, expanding their operations in Europe, where they, in many cases, already had some but have now strengthened those. In other cases, they've moved part of their workings to an EU jurisdiction to cover that eventuality. But again, we need to wait and see what the final outcome is before we know with any certainty around that. But for most businesses, it's it's not going to be a huge issue in the first instance. And you also need to remember there's this other game happening on the sidelines that isn't necessarily related, but is very much related. And that's Australia's currently negotiating a free trade agreement with Europe. So there are going to be opportunities in Europe as well. And as I said before, this isn't a nil-sum game. This is an opportunity for us to go to as many places in the world and sell our wares and our services to as many people as we can. That's what's going to help grow the Australian economy. That's what's going to provide better wages back at home, which we know have been stagnant here for some time. Uh, And it's what helps drive our economy more broadly and provide the services and all the other things that we'd like to have back here at home. So... We've got to get away from the idea that it's one or the other in terms of Europe or the UK or indeed Asia or Europe or or the UK, however you want to look at it. We need to be encouraging people to get out there and export and and trade and invest in other countries because that will also stimulate the same trade and investment opportunities back here at home. Seems like a long time ago, but the people in Britain who said we should ditch the pound and join the euro used to warn that Frankfurt would be the financial centre of the world, not London if if, if the UK didn't. Now... Has that happened? I mean, is Frankfurt considered a rival or Zurich or 
Dublin? I mean, what, what's the rival to London? Well, I love that you added Zurich in there because Zurich's part of Switzerland, which actually isn't part of the EU, mm. but has its own special arrangement. With well, it's the, a European financial capital. Well, mm. uh, no, absolutely, but mm. it's not part of uh, EU. the EU mm. uh, as such. Uh, look, Frankfurt's a beautiful city. I think it's got about 250,000 people. It's not huge. No, there are 400,000 bankers in London. So I'm not sure they're all going to move to Frankfurt. I'm not sure there'll be enough housing. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure they're going to pitch tents and uh, no. occupy the main square in Frankfurt, Frankfurt. Most bankers don't pitch tents. No. Unless they're glamping. <clears throat> well, I'm sure somebody might pitch them for them. Uh, <laughs> but look, certainly there, there will be some bleed. Uh, there are some stories going around. Barclays have just opened a, a, or are looking at opening an office in, in Dublin these things will happen. Are they, again, is it a nil-sum game or is this just an opportunity to, okay, we can have a look at our strategy. We need to engage with Europe. How are we going to do that? What are the opportunities now that we're not doing some of those things at home for us to do more at home? So I don't see it necessarily as, you know, it's one or the other. I think there's a an end story that's probably not being told often enough. If Australia did become a republic, would that affect UK-Australia trade and investment or would just go on as, as normal? I don't think it will have much effect at all. Uh, assuming that the Republican, the Republican model that we go to is one that continues the Australian way of life as we know it, which I can't see Peter Fitzsimons disagreeing with. No, that's right. Uh, Minimalist, yeah. yeah I, I think that the reality is there are plenty of republics within the Commonwealth, India, South Africa, and there Singapore. are constitutional monarchies too. So uh, I don't think there's anything overly drastic in terms of whether that would change anything with the UK. The Queen has said it's a decision for Australia. Others have different views here about whether we should or shouldn't have it. I think until there's a model that we can all get behind and something happens, we probably won't know the exact details, but I can't see how, unless there's something fundamentally adrift, I can't see how it would affect business. The reality is business will find a way. If there's a dollar to be made and an opportunity to be found, business will sniff it out and, and go after it. And that's what we need to encourage Australians in particular to think about, not just with Brexit, but in, in all our opportunities, thinking about how do, I, how do I aspire to more? How do I find a way to create more jobs, do more in more economies and be part of that global economy? And the more that we can do that, the more success we'll bring home to Australia. Well, as Jack Lang, the New South Wales Premier, used to say, when you go to a horse race, always back the horse called self-interest. It may not always win, but it's always a try. And that's the same right. is probably with business under a republic anyway. Yeah, I think so. I think regardless, that's an Australian way of life, I think. We take some of those traits, I think, from the UK as well. And, and particularly when you look not just at you know the early days of Australia and the, the people who battled out in terms of Western civilization in Australia, battled out and, and through the bush, but also those people who came after World War II, all the people who came from Southern Europe and, and Europe, Eastern Europe that have been such an important part of growing this country into the modern economy that's vibrant, connected with the world that we have now. And, you know, the more recent addition of our friends to the North and, and friends from South America, from Africa, from all, all parts of the world. As, as it's often said in Australia, we're one of the most successful multicultural countries in the world, if not the most. And uh, part of that is that we all aspire to get on with each other broadly and we all aspire to do more and better with, for, for future generations. And I don't think that'll change whether we're a republic, whether we're a monarchy, whether you come up with something better than that. David McCready from the Australian-British Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for joining us on the Airport Economist. My pleasure, Tim.
Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.